Good morning. My name Lock is Vincent. Radio. Good morning. My name is Vincent Davis. I'm a licensed attorney in California. And welcome to our show. Uh, today we'll, we'll be talking about getting your children back uh, from CPS. I want to take a moment and uh, say a prayer for those folks in uh, Paris, France, undergoing that um, horrific situation yesterday. Um, and I'm sorry to say that uh, this is the world that we're living in right now. Um, today I'm going to talk about what happens before your child is taken away from CP- by CPS and what you can do. In a lot of situations, uh, children are taken away without any warning. Um, and that happens when a CPS social worker determines that there is an emergency and the child just can't be left with you. But generally, in most cases, a worker does not take the child away unless they have a court order or a warrant. And in order to do that, they have to do some type of investigation before uh, taking your child away. My advice to most people, and I want to emphasize most because um, I don't give this in 100% of the situations. I don't give this advice in 100% of the situations. I think that you probably should not talk to social workers. When they investigate a case, they would come out and take your child from you if they have the evidence that you have abused or are at risk of abusing the child. Now, when they come out, they don't have that evidence, and the first thing that they do is they speak to you and speak to others in your family, your friends, and sometimes they are able to gather that evidence. I've spoken to many people who have said that, you know, I talked to the social worker, and what I said was taken out of context. Or they'll say, I talked to the social worker, and they've twisted what I've said just a little bit. And I've talked to people who have said, hey, I talked to the social worker, and when we see the social worker's report, this is not what I I said at all. And in those situations, um, it it happens a lot more than you would think. So my advice is just don't talk to the social worker or the police authority, because unless you talk to them, they can't get any evidence against you to take your child. They can get a court order or a warrant to come out and inspect your home. That does not mean that they can get a court order or warrant to make you talk to them. They can get a court order or a warrant to come out and speak to your children. However, in a relatively new law of, I think, less than a couple of years old, social workers can go out and to your children's school and talk to them without your permission. Wasn't necessarily the law all the time in California, but now that is the situation. We have a caller on the line right now. Uh, His number ends in 1521. Uh, They've been on hold since before this case, excuse me, before this show started. So I'm going to take their call now. Hello, you're on the air with Attorney Vincent Davis. Get your kids back now. What's your first name? 
Hello? Yes. You're on the air. What is your first name? Oh, okay. My name is Rabbi Ariel Pedersen. I live in Minnesota. Um, on February 3rd, CPS stormed my house um, like a SWAT team. I have two autistic children and a daughter who is not even disabled. They stormed my house, terrorized my kids, and took them out under the guise that the PCA that I had hired and I made the mistake of my life, I found out was downloading pornography to my children or my son. I found out later she had molested my son. Um, I walked in on her talking extremely filthy things to my children. And when I let her know she, I was going to fire her, she retaliated and made a statement. Now, our house has been the target of hate crimes for at least eight years. We're Jewish and we're Christian, which really shouldn't matter. But we have swastikas all over our land. We have die, Jew, die on my propane tank. They wrote, we will kill you, Jewish trash, on my driveway. I had to put up a six-foot fence, with which social services actually paid for to protect my son and keep one of them in who likes to wander. He's more severely autistic, and, and it gives him a big yard to play in and stuff. And then I put cameras up, you know, to catch these people. And I purchased stun guns to protect my kids. Well, when the PCA found out that I was going to fire her, she went to Child Protective Services and told them that I had stunned my son, which I had never, ever, ever done. And my children had told them all this. They waited two days after they, you know, took my children from the house. They, my son was exhausted. They interrogated them to to a degree where my son was so scared. He, at 22, excuse me, he told me that he peed his pants. He was so scared. My daughter, on the other hand, was not the least bit, you know, moved by them. But Isaiah was. And so they're going on some statements that he said, I'm going to view the videos Monday with my attorney and see exactly what they did. But um, there's been multiple, multiple uh, reports sent in to CPS against the PCA, who I found out had actually molested my son twice, um, not to mention downloading pornography, touching my other son. Um, my son actually saw her use my stun gun. It's always in the drawer, you know, which I give to the kids to go out and lock the gate at night because of this Nazi stuff. I, I bought them their own stun guns to protect them, and I'm not going to say I did not. I surely did. And the whole thing is that they dropped two of the charges, and now they know they know that it didn't happen, but CPS here refuses to do anything, and in this state we do not have a law for hate crimes. So I really don't know what to do. I have court for an omnibus on December 11th. So that's kind of what's going on with me. Uh, civil rights people, sent, I sent them a letter, and they... They told me that they wanted me to get all the information I could and get it back to them, which I found that was quite unusual because they don't really, really look at too many cases. But do you have any okay. advice for me? Well, l let me let me say this. I'm licensed in California, and I'm only it's only legal for me to give advice in California. But I can give you some general advice, and that is you need to talk to a juvenile dependency lawyer who's experienced uh, who's been doing this for many years, has done many trials, so that they can uh, help you in your defense. 
Um, if you Google for your area juvenile dependency attorney or juvenile dependency lawyer, um, I'm sure that you'll come up with several names of people that you can call and get a free consultation with. You can also call your local county bar association and you can get uh, names of people. Usually each bar association has a lawyer referral service and you can get names and, and you can get numbers and probably get a free or low-cost initial consultation. But it really sounds like you have a, a probably sophisticated yet complex um, yet unfair situation going there, going on there in Minnesota, and I urge you to get competent legal advice in your area. Somebody you know who's an attorney um, who's licensed in your state. Um, well, my two, my children aren't juvenile; they're twenty-two and twenty-one. Oh, and but social services is involved because they are um, have special needs, correct? Well, two of my children do. My daughter does not. But social services decided that they want to put her on a waiver, so they made her go to a doctor, had the doctor say she had something, you know, to get her on a waiver, to get her on SSI. It was It's ridiculous what they can do, you know, without even your permission. I, and my daughter is not handicapped. <clears throat> right. And, you know, I wish I could give you some advice on that. I just don't know Minnesota law. I'm only, you know, familiar and an expert in California law. But mm -hmm. I urge you to make those calls, do those Google searches to try to find a lawyer to give you some advice, perhaps free initial consultation so that you can get the information that you need to protect yourself and to protect your family. Thank you for your and call, what, Sarah. What, what type of attorney did you say? I had trouble hearing you. What type of attorney did you say I should try to look for? Okay. So type in Google. Juvenile okay. Dependency Lawyer. Okay. Or Juvenile Dependency Attorney. Okay. All I can right? do that. I, that's. And, and Google will give you results. Google will give you results for your geographic area. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. I, I appreciate I can do that. I'm a little computer savvy. I wanted to thank you for that, though, because I've, I'm, I've really not known what to do. And I know you're in California, so the laws are different. But I thank you for, for at least talking with me and helping me try to figure this out. Thank you, and good luck to you, sir. Okay. You have a blessed day. Bye-bye. Well, that was a call from Minnesota. Going back to our topic today, um, what to do before the social worker takes your child and is performing the investigation. Earlier I said you should probably not talk to the social worker. Now, I, I wrote a blog, and I forgot the name of the blog, um, on, one, on my website, fightcpsprotectiveservices.com. Uh, Let me see if I can find it. Um, on the website, Talk Radio Experts, there are a listing of several blogs. One of the things that you should also consider is speaking to a lawyer as soon as possible. I get a lot of calls from people 
whose children are eventually taken away. And they call me in the middle of the investigation or towards the end of the investigation. And what has already happened in most of these situations is the mother and or the father has already talked to the social worker and in a lot of these cases has already made damaging admissions or given evidence or given people, given the names of people who have the evidence uh, that can be used against the parents in a subsequent juvenile dependency case. Again, if you don't talk to the social worker, it's unlikely that the social worker is going to get that information where they can use it against you. So in a lot of cases where people call me um, before the child is taken away, one of the things that we do at our office is we try to meet with the social worker and their attorney to try to resolve the situation without having to file a case in juvenile dependency court. Now, it's very expensive for the counties in Los Angeles, excuse me, in California, to file a case in juvenile dependency court. And many times, not all, but in many cases, they want to sit down with you and, or they're willing to sit down with you and in a controlled environment with your attorney there, um, try to work out a solution where a case doesn't have to be filed. And in my practice, um, we do that in a lot of situations. We get a lot of calls. As a matter of fact, this coming Monday, I have a, a meeting with uh, a social worker and, and my client um, in the morning and then in the afternoon at a totally different location. I think it's even in a different county. I have another meeting with a social worker and their attorney. Um, and in these situations, what we're trying to do is we're trying to control the social worker's access to information and we're trying to control the amount of information that is given to the social worker and also to work out some type of, shall we say, program where the kids or the children don't have to be taken away and uh, perhaps the the parent can uh, begin some type of remedial course to uh, alleviate the need for the child being taken away. In California, taking away your children um, is supposed to be a last resort. And in a lot of cases, the social workers are willing to work with you, um, but you just have, you have to make sure that you control the information that you give to them. Let me give you an example of how this sometimes works. A social worker comes out to your home. You're not there leaves a business card and says, call me. Now, right there, someone, you should know that someone has reported you for either child abuse or suspected child abuse. And it's the social worker's job and duty to try to investigate that. At this point in time, you probably should call around and speak to attorneys who practice in this area. The reason is because a lot of people think, well, I can just meet with the social worker and I can talk my way out of it. And a lot of people, highly educated people, think that they can do that. The problem is, is what they don't realize is that social workers are trained professionals. They're trained investigators and they're trained to find out if there's abuse or suspected childhood. So the social worker may talk to you, may be getting information that you 
probably don't even realize that you're giving and may in the future use that against you. Um, I recently talked to a husband, father. Uh, apparently, the social worker, the social workers had been called by on the hotline, the county hotline, which each county has in California, and they and the mother had been reported for suspected uh, child abuse. And uh, during that investigation, the child abuse was. Um, what we call in the business inappropriate discipline. child was about six or seven, and it was a form of discipline. The mother had been spanking the child. Now, that's not illegal in California, but there's, you know, a lot of problems with that because most social workers think that you shouldn't be spanking your child, and if you do, it's child abuse. That's a whole different discussion. But in the investigation, the social worker required the parents to take a drug test. Now, there's no connection, or there wasn't any connection, between the mother using a a belt to uh, discipline the child and drugs. No one had said anything about the parents are using drugs and they can't uh, take care of the child. Well, the parents felt that they were obligated to take um, the drug test. And as it turned out, the father tested positive for marijuana, and in California, he didn't he didn't have a what they call a marijuana card, a medical card, saying that marijuana was prescribed. The social workers wanted to file a case against him and his wife for the suspected inappropriate physical discipline and the drug use, alleged drug use. Now, in California, it's not necessarily a child abuse problem if you've tested positive for an illegal substance. However, in many, many cases and in many, many situations, um, social workers act like it is, if you use drugs, you are per se um, unable to take care of your child. And that's just not the truth. But it turned out in this situation that the father was a, um, a a war vet, a recent war vet, who had been discharged from the Marines and was using marijuana, uh, albeit to self-treat uh, or to help in his treatment of his post-traumatic stress disorder. In this particular case, um, since there was no evidence that his drug use uh, tainted uh, his ability to take care of the child, what I did was I, I they called me and I met with the social worker and the couple and the social worker's attorney and I convinced them that perhaps the father could take a, a drug or a substance abuse class on his own, uh, that he might test uh, through urinalysis periodically for the social worker and that the both parents would take a parenting class. Luckily, uh, the social worker and or her attorney decided that that would be sufficient um, before filing a case and before taking the child away from the parents. The, cho- the child in this case, I think was about five years old and was strongly bonded emotionally, psychologically, and physically to the parents and removal of this child for such minor, what I call minor things, would probably do more harm than good. And in a lot of situations um, that I sometimes see or hear about, social workers will just take the child and um, 
you know, file a case in court. And then the parents are behind the eight ball when it comes to going to court and trying to get this child back. So there is a lot that can be done prior to the case being filed in court and prior to the social worker actually talking to you. So if you get that card in your door or you get a telephone call from a social worker, it's my advice that you uh, not talk to the social worker by yourselves. Um, Generally, you're not going to talk yourself out of the situation. And since social workers are trained professionals, uh, if you meet with them, you're going to basically be out of your league and the social worker may be gathering evidence to use against you to take your child. And then when you call me, the child has already been taken or called an attorney, you are behind the eight ball. And it's going to be more difficult um, to get the child back, or it may take a longer period of time to get the child back. If your child is taken into custody by the uh, social worker or by the police, um, the initial hearing in the juvenile dependency court uh, must be held no later than 15, excuse me, no later than the next court day. Now, I want to say that again. If the child is removed from your custody, the initial hearing in juvenile dependency court must be held no later than the next court day. And that rule is found in the California Rules of Court. I believe it's Rule 5.670, Subdivision A. Now, in many cases, many cases, a child is taken away on a Monday, and you don't go to court until Wednesday or Thursday. And in a lot of situations, and, and, and I must admit, I haven't done it myself enough times like I should, but you can argue that the case be thrown out if the, if the social worker violates that rule. Now, the, the downside of that is even if the judge um, dismisses the case because it's held or been filed too late, uh, most of the times the department or the county social worker will just refile the case against you. So it turns out that that, that one-day uh, rule may not have any teeth to it. When a case is filed in juvenile court, the let me back up a second. In California, there are, as in most states, two judicial systems. One is the federal system, and one is the state system. So there are federal courts within California, as in, in all states, and there are state courts. Well, the juvenile dependency system is run out of the state court system. So each county in California has their own superior court. And I'm in Los Angeles, and so Los Angeles has the Los Angeles Superior Court. The County of Orange has the Orange County Superior Court. Uh, the County of Riverside has the Riverside Superior Court. And they're just divided up among, I think it's 57 or 58 counties within California. Now, each Superior Court in each county is divided up further. And they're divided up into different departments. So you have, for example, the Family Law Department which handles people getting divorced and child custody and child uh, 
visitation and domestic violence between people who live together. You have the criminal court, and in that system you have uh, cases where police authorities, either the local police or the county sheriffs usually, or the state police have filed a case against someone um, for committing a crime or for allegedly committing a crime. Those cases are heard in the criminal department. Then you have the probate department, and that's where you go with respect to, you know, for example, a trust or a will. When there's disputes after someone dies, uh, that's handled in the probate department. Then you have the traffic department, and on and on and on. Then you have the juvenile department. And most counties have the juvenile court divided up in two different sub-departments. One is called juvenile delinquency, and that's if you're under the age of 18 and you've committed the crime. They handle you in a special juvenile delinquency slash criminal court process. And the second department, sub-department for the juvenile court is the juvenile dependency court. And cases involving social workers taking away your children through uh, CPS or DCFS, those are handled in the juvenile dependency court system. Now, in Los Angeles County, um, they have a building devoted to nothing but juvenile dependency cases, and it's in Monterey Park. Uh, San Diego County has um, several juvenile dependency courthouses. Um, one's in Meadowlark, one's downtown, one's in El Cajon, and there's a, a one court of juvenile dependency in the South County. Uh, Riverside has several juvenile dependency courts. They have the main juvenile dependency court, which is on County Farm Road in uh, Riverside itself. And then they have a courthouse in Marietta, uh, excuse me, a courtroom in Marietta, in the Marietta Courthouse. And they have a uh, location, a juvenile court out in Indio near Palm Springs. So there are, each county handles it differently. And now that I I remember, don't forget, L.A. has another location in Lancaster where they have two juvenile dependency courtrooms, and I hear that in 2016 there'll be a third one because, I don't know, business must be booming for the uh, for DCFS and CPS out in the Antelope Valley. So that's how, or that is the court you go to. And juvenile dependency courts are governed by not only federal, the federal constitution, but the state constitution, but primarily run by the laws of the Welfare and Institutions Code in California and by um, the Evidence Code and, and somewhat by the Code of Civil Procedure, although um, a lot of people argue that the Code of Civil Procedure does not apply in juvenile dependency court. That whole discussion can get complicated, and we'll probably cover that on a later show. So if a case is filed against you, you're going to the Los Angeles, excuse me, you're going to the California Superior Court system within your county and with it where your location is. And if it's in which is at the intersection of the ten and the seven ten freeways. It's different for every county where you're going to be. Um, I see we have a couple more calls. I'm going to pause in my discussion about the beginning of a juvenile dependency case, and I'm going to take a call. I think it's from San Diego, 
ending in the numbers 5397. Hello, you're on with attorney Vincent Davis on Talk Radio Experts. How can I help you? Okay, they hung up, so I'll go to the next caller, uh, ending in 3528. Hello, you're on uh, Talk Radio Experts with Attorney Vincent Davis. Hello? Hello? I can't hear this person. Uh, if you can call back in, please do. So going back to the topic of um, them taking away your children, once you appear in court, there are several things that's going to happen. Each county handles it differently. So I'm going to talk briefly about Los Angeles County. Generally, they tell you to be in court for your first appearance about 9.30 on your first court date. At that time, you'll be given um, a package of information which uh, determines or which will show you the allegations by the social worker. Um, Notice, what they call legal notice, must be given to the mother and all presumed or alleged alleged fathers or legal guardians must be given to the child itself, to adult siblings, and to siblings subject to the jurisdictions. And if the child is an Indian child, an American Indian child, um, notice must be given to the Indian tribe and to the probate department and to the district attorney. Um, Because a lot of child abuse allegations might have criminal implications, the Welfare and Institutions Code, Section 290.1 through 297, says that these allegations that are being filed should be forwarded to the district attorney for investigation. Uh, before I continue, I'm going to take a call right now, and it looks like it's from the Los Angeles area, and a number ending in 3722. Hi, Hello. good morning. Good morning. You're on the uh, air with Attorney Vincent Davis at TalkRadioExperts.com. How can I help you? Yeah, my, my name is Nicole Davis, and I experienced an encounter with Los Angeles County Child Protective Services about it 15 months ago, and they still have my children, and I'm just listening in, trying to get some information on how I could speed the process up to get them back home. Okay. Well, let me ask you this, Nicole. Are your children in a foster home or with relatives? Well, it's a tricky situation. One of the children, they have different fathers. One is 15, one is 6. The 6-year-old about four months ago, they placed him with his dad finally. So he's with his dad in Los Angeles. The 15-year-old, however, there's a lot going on with it because she won't stay in their group home. She keeps leaving. She doesn't want to be there. And the case is involving her, alleging that I hit her. 
um, we had a trial. We asked for a trial in the beginning, a speedy trial, but uh, we didn't get a trial until last month. So the trial is wrapping up, and we go back to court. And I, I'm, I don't know what they're going to do, but I'm just hoping that this can all be over. Okay, well, let me ask you this, Nicole. Did you say you've been involved in the court system for 15 months and you're just having a trial? Yes. Okay, because there are laws that um, say, and there are cases that have been decided that your um, disposition hearing can't occur more than 60 days after the detention hearing. So basically within two months you should have had a trial. Um so how do you? What happened that your case was extended 15 months without having a trial? Um, the court just kept forgetting. In the beginning, my daughter was sitting still. She was in a, um, she was placed with family for like six months, or eight months, out in Pasadena. Um, the court kept forgetting to send uh, the bus to pick her up. The court transportation was ordered to pick her up on six of the court dates for the adjudication hearing. They never got her. So when we went back to Court, the judge apologized. Sorry, uh, transportation forgot to pick your daughter up. So that well, happened. Did your, did your attorney object to this? These continuances? Um, never. I did all of the times because my thing was I just wanted you guys, the the department, to do their job and investigate so the kids can come home faster instead of having to wait. You know. Um, did you object on the record in the courtroom and tell the judge you didn't want these continuances? That I didn't want any more? I did. I mean, she said that um, they had a right to continue it for good cause. You know, in a lot of cases, when someone doesn't show up in court, the judge has the ability to order that the department or the sheriff's department go and pick that person up and bring them to court. Was that ever talked about in your case? Never. It, every time when they didn't pick her up, they just rescheduled a, a whole 30 days later. Hmm. Very unusual. And, Very unusual. Um, well, I'm, working, a, I'm working with an attorney on the side. It's a civil attorney. Um, however, I went through like three private attorneys Um they weren't very knowledgeable. I think the first one I hired didn't even specialize in CPS. It was like the law offices of Clarion Green. They specialized like in divorces, visitation. So I think that just not having the right knowledgeable attorney kind of also made this go longer. Yes, that is a, a strong possibility. I tell people all the time that if you're going to hire a private attorney, you're going to have to make sure that they are experts in this field because juvenile dependency, unfortunately, is a very specialized area of the law, very specialized area for procedure. So if you're going to hire someone, you've got to make sure that they have the experience. Someone once asked me, said, well, what is the, um, what is, what would you call an expert in this field? And I said, probably someone that's been doing this more than 10 years, um, you know, on a full-time or a semi-full-time basis, because there's just so much to know, so much policy, so much procedure, so much law, so much cases, so much politics. 
um, that the person's going to have to have that type of experience. Now, I'm saying that I'm not saying you shouldn't hire a five-year attorney, but in my opinion, you know, the five-year attorney may not have a sufficient amount of experience to do to do these types of cases. I don't know; it's on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, I think that the first one didn't, and the second one she kind of did. She used to be a um, one of the free attorneys that they give you if you go into the courthouse and you don't have an attorney. She used to do that. Then she opened her own office. I hired her next, and then she even had complications with my case because she had even said that she felt like because they didn't like me in a courthouse that I'm not getting treated fairly. I have a bachelor's in criminal justice, I'm a paralegal, and I'm a real estate agent. But I don't know a lot about this law, but I just only was doing whatever I could to try to fight and get my kids home. And then I also have a cousin who's a social worker, and most people were saying, oh, well, because you're fighting them, they're going to make it harder for you. You know, I've heard that said many, many times. I've had that, you know, personal experience where that is my opinion as well. But... um you know, never give up, never give up the fight. You know, I have a lot of callers calling in. I'm going to give you a telephone number, and I want you to call me uh, later today or later tomorrow on Sunday, and we'll personally talk about your case, okay? You ready to take the phone number down? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, it's 888. Okay. 888-6582. So it's 888-888-6582. And when you call that number, make sure you tell them that you want to speak to Vince personally. Okay. And um, do you want me to call you on Monday? Monday's fine. Um, when you call me, I want to give you. I want to talk in detail about your case and maybe give you some helpful hints that'll help you uh, prevail and get your children back. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much, Mr. Davis. Thank you for the call. Uh, the calls are backing up, so I'm going to take another call right now. Uh, hello, you're on with Attorney Vince Davis. Get your kids back now. TalkRadioExperts.com. Tell me what your first name is. I'm talking to a person with whose telephone number ends in 6576. Hello? Oh, hi, Mr. Hello? Davis. This is Verena. Can you hear me? Oh, yes, I can, Verena. How are you? You're on the air with... Uh, I'm fine. Paul. I'm fine. Thank you. I I just wanted to call in and tell you how much I appreciate the free seminars that you're doing. Well, thank you very much, Verena. I appreciate that. I um, I give free seminars every other month at different locations around Southern California. And the next time I'm giving a seminar is December 5th. I believe that's in the South Bay. Unfortunately, I think that may have sold out. And then I'm giving a seminar December 12th in Orange County. Right, right. I just wanted to let you know that both seminars, December 5th and December 12th, are all sold out. But uh, I got your email saying that you're going to be scheduling four seminars in the future, so I'll keep a lookout for those. Okay, very well, and thank you for your call. Yes. Uh, calls are backing up, so I'm going to take another call uh, with a person who has a telephone number ending in 3783. 
Um, hi, good morning. This is Selena. Hi, Selena. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. How can I help you this I, morning? I just had a general question. I just barely started. I just had my daughter removed in October. And my question was, as long as she keeps refusing to try to see me, they're just going to keep the case open until she decides that she wants to either come back or that she wants to see me. How old is your daughter? Fifteen. And she doesn't want to live with you? Um, she's currently just stating right now that she does not want to talk to me. She does not want to see me or, or you know, even the intent to come back home. Okay. So it's my opinion that the tail does not wag the dog, and 15-year-olds don't necessarily get to determine uh, where they should live or what they should do. I know there are a lot of cases that I've been seen over the years where children um, make statements about abuse or alleged abuse because they don't want to be returned to their parents' home where there are rules and regulations. Uh, what's your situation? Um, she alleged that I hit her, which um, I did hit her uh, before, but the bruising that she has did not come from me, but she says that it did. So now uh, we're going through the system, and they're asking her, do you want to see her? Do you want to talk? Do you want to text? And she keeps refusing. And where is she living now? She is placed with my brother, that at the time I thought it was um, suitable for her, but now I don't think so. Does your brother have less rules and restrictions for her? Yes. Um, does he allow her to go out on dates where you wouldn't? Yes. You know, it's a, I see this a lot, um, you know, uh, in cases where the child uh, makes some type of allegation and then, um, uh, you know, is taken away so they can get into a better, better what they believe to be a better situation. Um, right. It reminds, it reminds me of a case that I did years and years ago where a guy had um, married a woman and had a child, but she had already had an older daughter. And the daughter was about 15 or 16, and this gentleman was um, acting as the stepfather. And he was, you know, kind of strict and didn't let her date and didn't let her go out and didn't let her, you know, get on, uh, well, they didn't have social media, but didn't get on the Internet at that time. And um, uh, she made an allegation against him that... Um, that he had sexually abused her. Wow. And, uh, and uh, we went to trial, and unfortunately we lost. She got on the stand, and she seemed very credible to the judge and told the judge in detail what he had done to her. And uh, unfortunately for him, it didn't stop there because the police picked up the case, prosecuted him, and um, put him in jail for a few years. And when he got released, he was deported. Because um, he wow. was here in a green card. Here in a green card. And he was deported. Now, he was married to, you know, this teenager's mother. And um, they had a new child together, a, a little boy. So um, years go by, and I would happen to be in an office building at that time that had uh, on the floor many, many attorneys, and we all shared a uh, conference room. In the old days, they used to call it a agency, and we shared a library. Well, one day I walked into the library, and I saw this young lady sitting there. 
and she was obviously doing some type of work for an attorney on one of the floors. She saw me. I didn't say anything to her, and I just left the library. I was kind of, you know, shocked and blown away that I would see her. Well, as the weeks went on, I saw her again in the library on several occasions, and one day she came over to me, and she said, I bet you don't remember me. I looked at her. I said, no, I remember you. And she says, well, I just wanted to tell you something. You know, and I was, you know, thinking, well, what's she going to say? And she said, I want to tell you it wasn't true. Wow. I said, I said, what wasn't true? I said, she said her stepdad's name. He said, he never did that to me. I made it all up because he was too strict. But here, here's the real kicker, you know, because it's, it's, you know, maybe five, six years have gone by. She says to me, I'm, I'm uh, distraught and depressed because my brother had to grow up without a father and my mother never dated again. And we never were able to locate, you know, this gentleman who was my client because he had been deported and went back to Mexico and nobody ever heard from him again. So these types of situations happen, you know, and your daughter's not going to uh, realize what she's doing until she's much older. Right. You know, know, it's just, you know, what teenagers do. And sometimes teenagers learn from school or learn from their friends, hey, if I make allegations, I can get taken out of the home and go someplace where um, I can have an easier and a better life. And, you know, unfortunately for her, but unfortunately for you, she had a family relative that was sympathetic to her plight and um, got placed in his home. Yeah. Are you uh, in counseling or conjoint counseling with her at all? No, right now there's nothing between me and her because she's refusing to have any any type of contact with me. But I am going through my own individual and parenting classes on my own. Mm-hmm. Is she your only child? Yes. Well, it's a very tough situation. Um, You know, some people would tell you, hey, do the parenting, do the counseling, try to get back with your daughter. I've had some clients Mm -hmm. who tell me, you know what, what, if she's going to act like this or if he's going to act like this, I don't want to even be, uh, I don't want her back. Yeah, Um, that that was my my initial response at the beginning. So, I mean, it's it's something that you should definitely speak with your counselor about, perhaps your religious leader as well and try to determine what would be best for you. Um, you well, know, my, my question was, she can just keep refusing, 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 and then, you know, six months, eight months pass until she wants to? You know, I don't think that she can. Unfortunately, in a lot of the cases, and if she continues to do it, um, you may lose permanent custody of her. But I, I I think a lot of the judges, is your case in in Monterey Park in Los Angeles? Yes. A lot of the a lot of the judges there at some point in time are gonna get a sense that, hey, we have the tail wagging the dog and make her or require her to go to conjoint counseling with you to see what the problem is. Okay. You know? Um and, and and you know, unfortunately there's a problem. It may be all her fault. It may be all your fault. It may be a little vote. Who knows? But there's a problem that somebody should get to the bottom of and discuss so that you guys can get back together. Because I can tell you now, you know, five years from now, she's going to regret what she's doing, but it's going to be too late. 
Right. Her life will be altered. Your brother's life will be altered. Your life will be altered. And I and I bet this has probably caused a schism or a divide within your own family. You know, uh, your parents, yeah. your brothers, your parents, your brothers. More so, more more so with with my husband. Now he doesn't. You know, he's afraid. He's afraid that if she comes back, she might say something about him. So my marriage is over because of this. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, it's very hard. It's very hard. But if she keeps denying to try to see me to fix anything with me, then, you know, I guess I'm, I don't know. I, that last lady, she said 15 months. But that's very surprising to me. Yeah, that, that that's a very unusual case. And that's why I told her to call me um, at my office. But um, okay. your case, um, wow, I, I, let me ask you this. Do you want to get your child back in your home? Yes. Okay. Then you're going to have to focus on the counseling part, your individual counseling and that conjunct counseling. So whoever your lawyer okay. is, you need to tell them, I want you to do everything possible to get the conjunct counseling done. Now, one of the things Count that you conjunct, that means you conjunct. and the child okay. together. Yeah, you and the child okay. together. Now, one of the things you should also ask your attorney to do is you should ask the attorney to have the judge order what's called a 730 evaluation. 730 um, refers to seven, uh, Section 730 of the Evidence Code. And in a lot of cases, both family law, criminal, uh, juvenile, um, there is a list of 730 experts who do psychological evaluations of people for court purposes. And in this particular case, this might be a good idea. And you need to talk with your attorney about it. This might be a good mm-hmm. idea to have the child and you undergo a 730 evaluation so that some expert can get to the bottom of what the problem is. And, okay. you know, 730 evaluators can be found on the Los Angeles Superior Court website um, I can't give you the exact link, but if you Google it, because Google knows all, right? You can um, yeah. just Google 730 Evaluators Los Angeles Superior Court, and you'll probably come up with the link. There's a list of 730 Evaluators. Uh, the Juvenile Dependency Court in Los Angeles has its own list of evaluators as well. They're usually people that are used in addition to the evaluators listed on the uh, Superior Court website. And... It, that that report can be ordered. Let me tell you what a 730 evaluation is. Mm-hmm. What the evaluation usually entails is that everybody that's involved in the evaluation goes and sees a psychiatrist or a psychologist and takes psychological testing, and then undergoes a you know a series of interviews. And sometimes in this particular situation, your daughter will take the testing. You'll take the testing. Your daughter will go for one or two interviews with the evaluator by herself. You'll go for one or two interviews by yourself. And then some evaluators will possibly bring both of you together where you'll have an interview um, together. And the evaluator will get to see the interaction based upon what he knows about the history of the family, the history of each individual, the allegations made. And a lot of the 730 evaluators are truly experts. They're truly skilled in what they do. I always find it amazing what they do when they publish in their reports. The uh, the evaluator, after doing all of this testing and interviewing, and then the evaluator will talk to what's called collateral witnesses. 
you know, you might want the evaluator to talk to your husband or to talk to a coworker or talk to a family friend or that first cousin of your child who knows her very well. And so the evaluator can get information from all different sources, and then the evaluator, he or she, writes a report. I, you know, it's, it's progressed where a lot of evaluators now, not a lot, some, are now um, becoming trained and accustomed to that particular ethnic background and, you know, the way certain ethnic groups, you know, interact with each other. So I've seen a couple of 730 evaluators that have been, you know, experts in African-American families, experts in Latino families from Central or, you know, South America. So, you know, depending on your ethnicity, um, there may be issues going on that this psychological evaluator can get to and explain to the judge, hey, the reason why this is going on, because in this ethnic culture, this is, you know, things that are uh, valued and taken um, or looked down upon and that evaluator can write a report that can help the judge understand what's going on so the judge can make appropriate orders. You know, and one of the appropriate orders might be, hey, the the child, the 15-year-old child and the mother must go into counseling together, uh, must talk with the counselor so they can talk through their problems. And then hopefully she can come back or, you know, maybe she'll realize what she's done. You know, this right. it's just not, hey, I got to go live with my uncle. And, you know, that now everything's over. No, the judge isn't going to let that happen. The judge is going to make orders to hopefully get the two of you back together because that's the goal of the juvenile dependency system. If your child is taken away from you, the goal is for that judge to put you back together. So that might be uh, helpful to ask your attorney about the 730 evaluation and the conjoint counseling. Okay. I hope that helps um, you. That's yeah, very much. That's very, very, very helpful information because now I know what to tell my attorney because I feel like they're just, you know, they already go through the cases and they're already doing whatever they think they know, but we never get to say, can you do this? Right. So thank right. you. you know, I really appreciate it. Your attorney probably is a very good attorney. His or her only problem probably is they have too many cases. Yeah, I agree. But if you ha want to talk to me in the future offline, um, if you want to write down that telephone number, you can call and speak to me at my office anytime. That's 888-6582. But make sure you ask for me because there's a lot of people that work in my office and you may get to send to somebody else. Vincent, okay? Right? Yeah, thank you. All righty. Good luck to you. Thank now. you. All righty. Okay, so we only have about four and a half minutes left in the show. So I want to go over a couple of things um, that I wanted to cover today. Uh, the last we were talking about, we were talking about who's supposed to get notice. And I mentioned to you that the district attorney is supposed to get notice. So if you are ever involved in a child abuse case or suspected child abuse case um, with the Department of Children and Family Services or with Child Protective Services, please know that there could be criminal implications Hence, the further advice, don't talk to social workers because that information can be used against you in the juvenile dependency court. It also can be used against you in a criminal court proceeding. So don't talk to social workers and don't talk to police. They are also supposed to give you notice of 
the dependent, excuse me, of the detention hearing. Now, the detention hearing is that first hearing, and they're supposed to give you notice of the hearing, and they're supposed to give you personal service or certified mail notice of the hearing. Many times you get notice of the hearing just by telephone or by telegraph in the old days. You know, I'm getting um, messages that there are several other people on the call waiting to be heard. Let me try to see if I can take a couple of calls before we wrap this up. Hello? Okay. That one was uh, like a bad connection. Hello, um, I'm talking to the person with the phone number ending in 9301. This is Attorney Vincent Davis. You're on the air with TalkRadioExperts.com. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure, what's I was your just name? listening to Sarah. Sarah, how can I help you? In listening to, for example, the last woman that was on the air, um, I have a friend that has a similar situation, but there was no abuse, and the DCFS social worker knowingly went after the parent, knowing the parent was innocent, and another DCFS social worker that was under that supervisor was not allowed to dismiss the case. And there were a half a dozen families that he wrote a letter for on city stationery saying that and telling the um, the attorneys, the defense attorneys, to call him as witnesses but they didn't because they didn't want the judge to see the letter. And he since left social workers, um, DCFS, and is willing to go public with this information, but um, not sure really how to do that. Do you have any suggestions for those families? Okay, so let me get this clear. The families didn't have a case. They were going to be witnesses in the case. I'm sorry, say that again? Okay, you asked me to give you advice for the families. Now, were the families part of the case or just witnesses in the case? No, these were these were families that pleadings were open, so they were in dependency court. And the one so and the one supervisor knew that these families were were innocent and continued to pursue and they've, it, for all of these families, it's caused separation with the child who originally made the false accusation. And it was the cases just kind of ended up a year or two years later being dismissed for lack of evidence, but it destroyed the families. And the CSW underneath the supervisor, all during those cases, kept telling the department that these family, these parents were innocent. There was no abuse. And in two of the families, they knew that the place where they had placed the child um, was an abusive environment. 
so it it really was very conscious and intentional. Okay. And and that CSW left the department. Is the CSW that left the department willing to testify against the department? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So this is what I want you to do because we, we've run out of time for today. But I want you to take this number down. I want you to have the family call me so that I can speak to them. And my number is, you ready? Yes. 888-888-6582. That's 888-888-6582. Make sure when they call that they ask for me personally. Okay? There's, okay. You know, there's a lot of people that work in my office and, you know, they won't know what we had this conversation. All right. And there's, there's a lot that can be done with respect to going public with it. There's a lot that can be done making official complaints about it to the state of California and perhaps the federal government. And there's a lot that can be done with respect to perhaps um, bringing some type of claim or lawsuit with respect to civil rights violations. What you're telling me right now, if, tr- if true, is very, very serious. Yes, you understand? I know. I know. Basically, what you're telling me is crimes have been committed. That's what you're telling me. Yes. This This is is more than just false. Right. I mean, there's falsification of records. It's it's more than than that. Um, One family had a special need child who, two special need children who were um, severely damaged emotionally for the rest of their lives because of the, the problems it created. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. When did this case end? How long ago? In the end of 2013, I believe, or middle 14. I know one okay. of the families had pursued several uh, personal injury attorneys but couldn't get through, like, to you, you know, got through to other people. Okay. Well, have them call me um, on Monday. All okay. right? Okay. Great. Thank you for your call. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, folks, we've run out of time. I have to sign off. Um, I am told that this show will be replayed today at talkradioexperts.com. Uh, today, I think, at 1 p.m. and 5 p.m., I will have another live show um, next Saturday at 8 a.m. And I'm getting a lot of requests to do the live show more often, so maybe I'll be doing it more often. But until we talk again, good luck and take care.